Welcome to Field Notes on Climate Change, the podcast from the front lines of Arctic research. I'm Emma Brisian, and this podcast has been produced in partnership with the Climate Impacts Research Centre at Umeå University, and this summer I'm going to be based at the Arbisco Scientific Research Station. In each episode, I'm going to be taking you out in the field with me as I join scientists and researchers from all around the world as they conduct their research here in the Arctic environment. Now, the work that goes on here at the research station all contributes a small piece to the great puzzle of understanding climate change. In this episode, I'm going to be heading uphill and putting my very limited botany to the test as I join the Fingerprints of Change project. Also known as the Nula project, the team up here are exploring the phenology, so that's the seasonal growth and development, of the plants which live up on the side of Arbisco's Mount Nula to better understand the role that climate change might have on plant life up here. So, welcome to Arbisco in northern Sweden. Here, well above the Arctic Circle, climate change is occurring two or three times faster than it is in some of the temperate regions of the world. So the question for many of the species that live up here is whether they are able to adapt or move fast enough to handle the rapidly changing climate. Now, before I head out into the field to help the teams collecting data tomorrow, I've made a trip up Mount Nula with Keith Larson, who established the project, to find out a little bit more about the history of this project and how it all works in 2019. Hello, I'm Keith Larson. I'm a scientist based at the Abisko Scientific Research Station in Sweden, 200 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle. And you found us a perfect spot to sit out of the wind up on the mountain with a view over Abisko. It seems to me like this might be the perfect place for you to give me a bit of an introduction about the project. Well, the Nolia project is a project looking at plants and the phenology of those plants. The phenology, think of that as light, nature's calendar. So when do the plants green up in the spring or the summer? When do the flowers come out? When do you have the fruit? When do you have the seeds? You know, when do they turn yellow in the autumn? That's what the Nolia project is. And essentially, we're repeating a study that was done 100 years ago by a botanist who was based at the Abisko Scientific Research Station, Tor Fries. He came from a long history of botanists. He came up to the Arctic and he asked the question, you know, why are the plants located where they're at? And what time of year do they, they do the things that they do? And then how does the forest and how does the snow affect the distribution of these species? Okay, and the way that you described it to me earlier as well, there are kind of three prongs to this yeah. project. Could you go into those? Yeah. The first thing is it's a repeat or a resurvey of the original research that was done from 1917 to 1919, where Tor Fries went out every five days, measured meter by meter, how much snow was on the mountain, and then he would also record the distribution of the plants in 45-meter segments all the way from the forest floor to the summit across a 3.4-kilometer transect. And he would then, which species are where and what are they doing? So that's the first part of the project. It's a resurvey. The second part of the project is a citizen science project. And the reason why I set up the citizen science project was that this transect is a sample size of one. So if I want to know if what we discover about the changes that have occurred in the last 100 years with climate change are real, the question is, are they unique to Nolia or are they part of a much broader uh, pattern of change? And so with the citizen science, we can actually get the public to go out there with a smartphone app called iNaturalist and then take photographs of plants wherever they're at in the Swedish mountains or around the Abisko area. And because those photos from your smartphone have a GPS, location and they have a time and date stamp, 
it gives us the same kind of information that we collect. And the most perfect part about that project is you don't even have to know what the plant species are because I have 120 uh, experts who help identifying everybody's plants. So we use that to generate data. But I think more importantly, citizen science is another way of connecting the public with science. So kind of breaking down that ivory tower. It also allows people to reconnect with nature. The third part of the project is to try to understand the mechanism of change. So one of the most obvious changes that we have here is that the tree line over the last 100 years has expanded upslope about 230 meters. Now that's a really big change. But the really interesting part of that is that the mountain is not growing. So that means the alpine zone is shrinking. So an expanding forest isn't necessarily inherently bad, but if the forest is expanding and you have a bunch of species in the alpine habitats that um, can't go anywhere else because the mountains aren't growing, then that's a problem. And so the second, or I should say the third part of the project is really to try to understand the mechanisms of change. The ability of the plant species or species to be able to kind of buffer the change that is occurring or be resistant to the change versus, you know, when do plant species lose out and then they just disappear. Okay, so we'll catch up with Keith again a little bit later. But first, it's time to get to know the lovely field assistant who's going to be taking me out on the mountain tomorrow. Anna, tell me a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm the field assistant this year in the Nilla project. And I've been here the last two years as well, working on the same project, but as an intern for my studies. And this year I got the chance to come back and to work on a project and to have a little army of interns working with me and helping us uh, gathering all the data. And additionally, I'm writing my bachelor thesis. So that's why I'm here and that's what I'm doing. One of the interns on the project is Pia Raker. Like Anna, she's studying for her bachelor's degree in Germany and is here for the summer. Hi, I'm Pierre and I'm from the University of Greifswald in Germany and I'm studying landscape ecology and nature conservation. And I'm an intern in the project Fingerprints of Change, Arbisco Plants and Phenology. And I also have my own project within this project um, where I collect data on the plants and their phenology on the summits of Njula and Slaughter, which is the peak next to Njula. And I will look which impact, slope and aspect, that's the cardinal direction kind of have on the plants and their phenology. And then I will write my bachelor thesis about this. Sounds great. And there are so many scientists that are studying climate change research and every single one of them can only focus on one really small thing each. So before we head up the mountain tomorrow, perhaps you can tell me, what does climate change research look like for you? Uh, climate change research for me is uh, the adaptions plants have in this Arctic environment up here, and especially the plant communities and how they cope with the ongoing climate change. And how about you, Pia? Climate change research means for me to look at plants and their phenology and then making predictions about how climate change affects plants, especially in their distribution and in their phenological timing, and then comparing it to old data. And this way you can maybe say something about the impact of climate change on plants in this region. And now that we've met the team, it's finally time for me to join Anna up on the mountain. Today, I'm going to be helping collect plant phenology data along parts of the transect for the first part of the project that Keith described earlier. 
Now, we know the data that we collect here in 2019 is going to be compared to data from 100 years ago. But something that wasn't around 100 years ago is the mountain chairlift. It's just open for the summer season, so that's exactly where our field day is going to begin. Okay, so one thing that has made fieldwork here just that little bit easier is the chairlift. Yes, it is. It's awesome to have it up here. But it doesn't take us all the way to the top, does it? No, it takes us, I think, three quarters of the way. And then we still have to walk one quarter to the top. But it makes at least the middle part in the shrub zone quite easy because you can just walk over and you can start working directly without hiking up two hours. <laughs> yes, and there are 79 plots. Which ones are we doing today? We are starting at 63 and we are going down until we meet the people from the forest. So it could be around 35 or maybe 32, could also be 49. We will see how, we, how fast we are today. <laughs> well, I have to say this is a really lovely, peaceful commute. Yeah, it's even better to go down because then you have to view over La Porten and the lake and Abasco and... But we're not, we're not going down, we're going down on foot. We're going down on foot, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so we're in the shrub zone, so what sort of thing are we going to be looking for? Uh, we're gonna, first we're in the alpine zone, so we're going to look for all those small heath plants and all those dwarf shrubs, which are flowering right now, which is kind of uh, exciting. And then when we uh, cross the last snowfield, we're coming into the shrub zone, and as far as I can see it from here, uh, quite a lot of snow is gone since the last time we've been out. Um, so there might be a lot of small plants coming out. And that's why I took so many flags with me to flag all the species. I, don't, I, I might know in two weeks, but for now, they, if there's just one little leaf coming out, it's super hard to see what it's going to be. So I guess it's going to be a long day today. <laughs> Excellent. My, my first day in the field and it's going to be a long day, but the sun is shining. Yes. Oh, you can hear the train going And the train past. is coming. We are sat on the chairlift, so that makes my life a lot easier. It means we don't have to hike up to the top. And yes, Anna has absolutely loads of these little flags in her bag. So I, I look do. forward to finding all sorts of things that I certainly won't know, but you yeah. might not know. Yeah, but if you find something, just uh, tell me and I, I might put a flag in because uh, it's quite difficult to identify the plant when it's just this little leaf coming out. So... And how much longer are you going to be staying here and doing this uh, this walk every five days? Until the end of October. Um, it's all depending on the snow. So it might be that the snow is coming back end of September, so we're going to be done then. It could be that we have to do field work in November. It's all depending on the climate or the weather. Better it's the weather. Yeah. Uh, but more importantly, how long does the chairlift run for? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think they stop in the middle of September. Okay, but you'll be super fit by then. Yeah, hopefully. will be no problem. Yeah, hopefully. But yeah, it's always funny because the season starts without the chairlift and the season ends without the chairlift. So it's hiking at the end and at the beginning, kind of closing the circle. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. So Pierre, we've come up the chairlift and we've hiked up a little bit further. We've even gone through some snowfields, which I didn't really expect in June, but there we are. And we've reached post 61. And this is where Anna and I are going to leave you because we are going down the hill. Yes. You, on the other hand, are going up to the top. Yeah, right. And we are looking at the phenology under the summit. 
And when we reached the summit, kind of, we will start with my project to look at the different aspects. And they have distributed some plots. And then um, we look at squares of one by one meter and we'll record the plants that occur there or the species that occur there and the phenology status of them or phase, actual phase. Yeah. Perfect. Well, good luck. We'll see you at the end of the day. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Okay, Anne, it's just you and me now. We're ready to get going. So tell me, how are we going to be identifying and recording all of the plant phenology today? Uh, we have a special code system, um, and there it's categorized by um, the phenological state. So a different code for leaf development, fruit development, um, flower development. And those codes were established by Tore Fries, so we just keep to them. And um, if we, for example, find a Derpensia laponica here, like we have it right here, and it's flowering on uh, two different spots, then we just write down B2 um, for two individuals flowering. Um, and uh, we do this for all the species and it would be great if you can just then write it down in the right column on a data sheet we have prepared and you find in a binder. Perfect, yep, yeah, I'm sure I could do that. That sounds nice and easy for me. Awesome. So you also have quite a large team, uh, quite a large international team particularly working on this. How do you keep track of all of the different plants and everything that you see while you're here? Uh, we just use the scientific name, so like I just said, the Pensia laponica or Cassiope tetragoni, because then everybody knows what we're talking about and not having big confusion about German, Swedish, English names, and Tore Fries also just used the scientific names, uh, which makes it a lot easier for comparison and uh, yeah, using the data. Perfect scientific names it is. Okay, I've got my piece of paper and I've got my pencil. Are you ready to show me the mountain flowers? I am, let's go. So the transect that we are walking along today is what's known as an ecological gradient. From top to bottom, it contains several different ecosystems and different habitat types. So if we wanted to collect this kind of data uh, on this range of habitat types traveling from north to south of Sweden, our experiment would end up spanning over a thousand kilometers. But here, thanks to the mountain and the particular environment that we're in, we've got the example of forest, shrub and alpine habitats all in a small distance of 3.4 kilometres. That might not sound very far, but it does still take the teams an awfully long time to collect their data. And we have Cassiope tetragona over here, but there's nothing going on. So it's just a, K, a plus. K would be a but, but it's just a plus. This is always so funny when you sit down for a second and you look around a bit, you find so much stuff. Pretty. This is why it takes so long to get down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've seen a lot of these white ones before. Yeah. What are they? This is the Diapensia laponica, an arctic cushion plant growing up here. And it's quite nice because they are able to change the inside temperature in the cushion by plus four degrees. Wow. So they kind of regulate their inside habitat or inside environment just by growing like this patchy cushion, which is kind of nice when it's minus five outside, you just have minus one in there. <laughs> that, oh, Vitis idea, lingonberries. Oh, now that's one I recognize. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the one with the nice fruits. 
So we found some flags left yes. here, probably by you. Yes, uh, on the 21st of May. Ah. <laughs> so we have number 003 and it might be a Lutsula. And it actually is one. And oh, look at that. It starts flowering. Oh, wow. Oh, that's <laughs> tiny. That's like, I would there's never not even that. a stalk on, on the flower, but there is this little whatever coming out. Wow. And it's a, yeah, then it's a V1. So a few weeks ago you put the flag in because you didn't know what it was. Yeah, exactly. And now you can come back and identify it. And it's yes. already flowering. It's already flowering. Amazing. It is. And we actually got a second one over here. Uh-huh. Ah, but that's just Rhododendron laponicum. So now and then we put the flags out on species, which we forget now and then. Um, so this is for remembering where it's actually standing. Ah, uh, finding it again later. Yes, and this species is so strange because it disappears in the middle of the season. Really? So you find it at the beginning because it's flowering with this purple color. And then in the middle, it's just disappearing. And at the end, it's like, ah, that's Rhododendron again. <laughs> so it flowers again for a second time? No, then um, the... the whole surrounding is going into orange, red, brown colors. And then this is still staying green. So uh. then you see the green spots again. It's like, ah, yeah, it's still there. But that's I... the perks of having done it for three years in a row. Yeah, it is. You know uh, everything. <laughs> yes, and it's quite funny because you still know where the plants are standing. So. I know, okay, I have to look behind that stone and there might be that species and then you go there and it's still there. Aww. So this is kind of, yeah, nice. This really is your backyard, you know this yeah, so well. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's my backyard. Yeah. I have spotted a plant book in your backpack though, so you don't know everything. Is that just a double check thing? Yeah, it is, especially for the graminoids and now and then some new species come out and you just stand before them, it's like... I have no idea what you are and sometimes you want to know it and not just putting a flag in like we did here. 5247. Ha! Right here. 60. Perfect. So you're brandishing what looks like a straw with a cap wrapped in tin foil. <laughs> yes. What kind of science is this? <laughs> this is the best example for homemade science. Yeah. Um, it, it does look like I made it in the kitchen. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, we have little uh, temperature loggers called eye buttons, and we wrap them in some plastic bags to give them a bit of um, waterproof um, shelter, and then we've put them under those uh, plastic foil umbrellas which are stick to this uh, straw and um, the plastic or the aluminium foil it is the the foil is actually for reflecting the sun so we want to get the surface soil temperature every hour once yeah for now that's the best way of doing it but we're getting some um, some nicer measurement stuff for getting soil moisture and surface temperature and air temperature and not having this because quite often lemmings are running around eating it or the snow is um, putting it somewhere else. So we lose uh, some of the eye buttons now and then, but they're good for getting a temperature gradient on the transect as well. Yeah, and what are you going to be using that data for? They're, I guess they're going to use it to combine with the snow measurements to see, okay, the snow is gone, the temperature is, I don't know, maybe three degrees and we recorded some flowers, so to see how fast everything um, is evolving after the snow is gone.
Okay, so that is me done for the day. Uh, we've finished recording all the phenology of the plants that we've seen along the part of the transect that we were assigned to do today. So it's now just a couple of kilometres hike down to the rest of the mountain and then back to the research station. So tomorrow, Anna and the team have the enviable task of logging all of the data that they've collected today into their spreadsheets. I wouldn't want to slow them down or anything, so I think I might just sit that one out. Okay, I'm back at the research station now, and yes, I've avoided data entry duty. Instead though, I've set up my microphones and I'm keen to understand a little bit more about why Anna and Pia have chosen to spend their summers in this really remote corner of Sweden. Now Anna, you could be studying landscape ecology anywhere in the world. Why have you chosen Arbisco? It just came by chance actually. I wrote many emails for an internship I had to do during my studies and I ended up here and I I love it. It's an amazing place. It's As you can see, I'm coming back now the third year, so there's something special about that station. And I might come back next year as well, so it's just fabulous up here and I can't imagine another place doing science or doing the work I'm doing. It must be really rewarding as well, seeing things change year on exactly, year. Exactly, yeah. That's It's just awesome coming back and having still the same things going on. Yeah, it's certainly an excellent place to be based if you're interested in climate research. And speaking of, why do you think that it's really important that we're talking about Arctic plant phenology, of all things, when it comes to understanding climate change? Mainly because of biodiversity loss. We're losing so many species um, in the last couple of years, centuries, decades, and it's just going to be more and more. So what we try to figure out is special ways plants live up here and how we can stop biodiversity loss and mainly contribute a bit to the big issue of climate change and climate change research. Brilliant. Yeah, everything we do here all contributes a little piece. And one last thing for you, Pia, uh, the Research Centre is always expanding its outreach and its public engagement. So what are your thoughts on sharing and communicating things like the findings of the Nullia project? Yeah, so I think in, um, it's in general important to communicate at all. And I think this is something that was kind of a little bit ignored in the past. And there was kind of the separation between the the scientists and the kind of normal people. And I think it's important to kind of build a bridge there. You can kind of quantify the impact of humans on nature or on the environment. So especially when you're talking about this man-made climate change. And then I think, it, but it's also very important to kind of then use the data and look how we can change our society in a way that our way of life is more sustainable. So I think this is very important as well about the research. So it's far more than just spending a summer enjoying the views across the Swedish mountains. These plant phenology projects are really helpful in predicting how biodiversity might be impacted by climate change before we lose species to climate change. The project certainly offers a rare and fascinating insight into a century of change here, but it's important to say that we can't attribute every single change of phenology or the plant communities that we see here to climate change, because there have been plenty of other changes that have happened to Arbusco in the last 100 years. So to explore that a little bit further, we're going to jump back into my chat with Keith from earlier. So one of the things that we're talking about in this environment is change and I don't want to have a sweeping statement and say that all change is climate change in the sense that it's greenhouse gases and global warming because there's a lot of other things that have um, driven change in this environment aren't there? That's right 
the human population in the last century has grown tremendously. So that means how we use every square centimeter of this planet has changed, you know, from the bottoms of the oceans to the top of the mountains. So when you think about a landscape up here, 100 years ago, there was mining that was just starting to come in here. There was some tourism coming, but this was a Sami landscape. The Sami are the indigenous reindeer herding people. But one of the things that we've seen from climate change perspective, for example, is that uh, the areas where they graze their reindeer change as the forest expands or things like that. So on the slope of Nolia here, remember I mentioned that the uh, tree line has moved up by about 230 meters. Well, that all wasn't facilitated by warming. On this mountain in particular, there's a chairlift. And that uh, chairlift essentially was built, I think, in 1964. And prior to 1964, the Sami grazed their reindeer right at the tree line, where you have all this lush, fresh vegetation. But when the chairlift was built, it meant a lot more humans started coming here as tourists. So they stopped grazing their reindeer here. And then the effect of that was that you have warming going on in the background, you remove the reindeer, then the tree line can move. So we could probably argue that very little of the tree line expansion would have taken place if the Sami had not removed their reindeer from this landscape. Now, one of the other consequences of the changes that we see is that, for example, the Arctic, everybody thinks of snow and ice. I mean, we're looking at snow right now, right, right from where we're sitting on this mountain. And, you know, that snow is an essential part of the ecosystem up here. But in the wintertime, it's still cold with climate change, but we also get more warmth in the wintertime. So we get snow, cold, rain, ice, and ice is bad. And the reason why ice is bad is that when the snow melts and ice layers form over the vegetation, essentially the reindeer have a harder time to access their winter food, which is the plants in the windblown areas or the plants the places where they can push the snow aside with their heads and their and their and their and their uh, antlers. So I think that a lot of people are are surprised about all these kind of interactions. You know, we think about global warming as like oh, it's getting hotter or the sea level is rising. You know, the glaciers are melting. You know, uh, those are the kind of basic stories that we hear on the news: the droughts, the fires, the hurricanes. But in the Arctic, the real changes that are happening now on the front line of climate change here are essentially the things that affect the seal and polar bear hunters in Greenland or the Inuit uh, uh, bowhead whale hunters in the high Arctic or for the Sami people here in Sweden and Norway and Finland, it's these changes in winter conditions, for example, or the fact that as the climate gets warmer and warmer in Europe, imagine, you know, we predict that there will be very little real winter weather from most of the Alps in the future. So everybody that's gone to the Alps skiing is going to be coming to Scandinavia. So how's that going to affect the Sami people's ability to make a life for themselves as reindeer herders? That's a really tough question to answer right now, but I think that's something that they think about a lot. So one of the things as well, when we first started talking about this project, was you highlighted the importance of the interns and the students mm-hmm. that are working on this project with you. Yeah. Yesterday... I had six interns with me, so six students, and uh, we spent from eight in the morning till seven o'clock in the mountain. So that's an incredible amount of work. But for me, going up here every five days without a small army of bright, enthusiastic, tough students, there's no way this data would be collected. There's no way, it's physically impossible. I would never be able to collect this data by myself. 
And I think that's the story of science in general. I mean, we see the, the articles in the news, and it's always the people like me who, you know, are good at talking about our science, that, that have this uh, role. We're the ones being interviewed. But at the end of the day, none of us gets any of this work done without the lab assistants, without the field assistants, without the students. And all of that is fundamental. This question you might know is coming because I ask this to everyone that I get on the podcast, but perhaps this is the nicest location that I've asked because we're sat at the top of the mountain and it's a glorious sunny day. But Keith, what does climate change research look like for you? Climate change research, for me, the research I do and most of us do is interesting, but it's not important to changing the world right now. So when I think about climate research right now, I think that every year we get more and more people going to science and essentially, the questions just keep getting deeper and deeper and more refined. So, you know, where Charles Darwin had a picture of the world that might have been a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, it's a one million piece jigsaw puzzle right now. And there's a million scientists working on all those little pieces. So climate research for me really is about thinking deeply about the specific kinds of questions like Anolia here. But also then, how do I zoom out and put that into a perspective and try to make my research important? And I would say that most of it has to do with the interactions I have with students who are the next generation of scientists and citizens who will be faced with the problems that we've created today and in the past, but then also working with the public, the policymakers, you know, the military leaders, all those different kinds of people so that they can understand that, you know, this is a human problem. It's a tractable problem. It's not an easy problem. It's a big problem. But, you know, we don't have smallpox on this planet anymore. The ozone hole is shrinking. You know, we have the capacity to do amazing things that transcends national boundaries, different cultures and religions. And so for me, climate science is that, that cohesive part of science where I get to interact with people from around the world on a big problem that is absolutely fundamental for the survival of us, not this planet. I think that's what people forget, is that climate change isn't going to destroy our planet. I mean, we've had meteor strikes and volcanic eruptions that have caused extinctions in the past. But this is about the fight for survival. And in that process of survival, it's also about making sure that everybody has a fair chance. And that's something that's fundamentally important to me. And I never thought about that before I moved here. And in the process of being here on the front line of climate change and then thinking about how do I really make an impact, it's not another scientific paper, I can tell you that. It's about the interactions that I have with the public and with the scientists and the students and the policymakers, that's where I make a change. Well, he has certainly given us some things to think about. And I, for one, look forward to coming back one day and finding out just how things are changing for myself. In 100 years, there may even be another team of scientists keen to use this data set and the previous one, and it could provide the basis for some really interesting long-term work. So anyway, thanks very much for listening. Please do get in touch with any comments or questions. You can tweet me at Emma Brisdian or have a look at the show notes for other ways to get in contact. I'll be more than happy to put you in touch with any of the academics featured in any of the episodes. I'll see you again soon for another episode of Field Notes. I hope you enjoy the rest of the season. Music